All right, let's study God's Word together. I hope you have your Bibles. I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, the 8th chapter. Mark chapter 8 is where we're going to be studying today. And uh, roll up your sleeves and let's jump into the uh, study of the Word of God today. Uh, I want to tell you about a friend of mine. Uh, His name is Daniel. Uh, And Daniel uh, will be attending the second service this morning as he has been for the last uh, several weeks. Daniel uh, is uh, a former student of my my daughter, uh, Betsy, at Texas A&M University. Uh, And uh, she uh, has been uh, mentoring uh, he and his wife. uh, And uh, uh, over the last year, he's been Christian for a while. He loves Jesus. He loves being in the Air Force. He loves Texas A&M. But one thing he loves more than anything, anything else other than his wife uh, is Jesus Christ, and it just flows out of every pore of his life. Every time I see him, oh, he's in, and when he's been in church, uh, he just comes up to me and says, Neil, I just got to tell you what God's doing in my life today. Uh, last Sunday, I talked to him after, sec- after the service, uh, and uh, he said, Neil, I've been, uh, I've been witnessing to a friend of mine. He's, uh, uh, he's a Jordan- Jordanian uh, officer in this class that I'm in. He's in an international class at Fort Lee uh, and, uh, uh, of international uh, uh, soldiers, uh, officers. He's I've been witnessing to my friend, his name is Muhammad, and uh, he said uh, uh, he's beginning to listen about what it means, uh, what, uh, who Jesus is. He said, do you think you can help me find an Arabic Bible for him? I'm having a hard time finding one. I said, sure, Daniel, I can do that. No sweat. It ain't as easy as you think to find an Arabic Bible, but I found one, and I texted him last night during Texas A&M game, and I said, hey, I go Aggies, but uh, more important, I, I found your Bible. I'll have it at church for you, second service uh, uh, tomorrow morning. And he texted me back, and he said, that is great, but better news is my buddy Muhammad has promised he'll be at church tomorrow. Now, what I want you to understand is this will be the first time ever Muhammad has ever been in church, ever, ever, ever. Ever. And I'm just praying that people will show that they love Jesus and that uh, they mean what they say they mean when they sing and they worship so that he'll see a group of people that say, uh, that live what they say they, they believe in. And I pray that they, he'll hear a clear gospel message that I want to share with you right now from the Gospel of Mark, uh, the 8th chapter. So y'all be praying for my good buddy Daniel. Uh, be praying for his friend Muhammad because right now he's probably coming up with every excuse under the sun why he can't uh, come to church today, and I don't want to see that happen. And neither do you. Can I get an amen on that? Uh, all right. Let's, uh, let's study the Word of God together. Mark chapter 8 and verse 1. Mark chapter 8 and verse 1. We're continuing to study, if you have not been with us, it's kind of a line-by-line study in the Gospel of Mark, the last half of this uh, Gospel of Mark and the study we've been, uh, we've entitled King Jesus. And, uh, and uh, so we're focused on Jesus the King in this section of Scripture. Uh, and uh, that's a good thing, Megan, if you want to go ahead and show, uh, throw the slide up, that'd be great. And uh, uh, as we come to Mark chapter 7 and 8, it's kind of a very pivotal time uh, in, uh, in worship, uh, or rather in the story, because for the very first time, uh, uh, Jesus is stepping out of Israel. And uh, uh, several weeks ago when I preached last, uh, Jesus was in uh, the, the, uh, what is today uh, the nation of Syria. And today, lo and behold, remember I told you Muhammad was a Jordanian officer? Lo and behold, today's lesson comes from the only passage of Scripture where Jesus is in the nation of Jordan. 
Isn't that crazy? Isn't that, isn't that crazy to you? Uh, and uh, that's the story this morning. Well, let's kick off and begin this study And uh, 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 this morning. I hope you're ready to roll and study God's Word, take some notes on the message, and let's just dig into the Word today because uh, that's what I'm uh, looking forward to being able to do with you uh, today. In verse 1 and 2, this is what it says. It says, During, the days, uh, during those days, uh, another large crowd gathered with Jesus, and since uh, they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him, and he said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me for three days, and they have nothing to eat. Seems like everywhere Jesus went, crowds of people just flocked to him. And it made sense. It wasn't just the fact that Jesus did miracles, but Jesus also broke the bread of life to people over and over and over again. What I want you to do as we're studying through this section of Scripture, there are four key words that I want you to notice and kind of highlight in your mind or even in your Bible. I want you to notice every time the word bread is mentioned in the text or or the word loaves. Those are significant two words. Then two numbers that I want you to highlight, the number 7 and the number 12. And if you'll keep those four words in mind, it'll help you build this section of Scripture together and make much more sense to you. Matthew, Matthew chapter 15, verse 30 and 31, gives this commentary about the people that were there. It says, great crowds came to Jesus, bringing the lame and the crippled and the mute, and they laid them at Jesus' feet, and he healed them, and people were amazed and praised the God of Israel. Now, that is significant because I want you to understand as Jesus is ministering today, he is not ministering among, uh, among Jewish uh, individuals, but he's ministering to Gentile uh, individuals. There's only one trip that Jesus takes outside of Israel, and this is it. Four weeks ago, we studied chapter 7, and we see that Jesus did two miracles in the nation of Syria. Then Jesus moves to the ten cities, the Decapolis, which is in modern-day Jordan, and Jesus does this incredible, incredible ministry. It says in verse 1 and 2, Jesus said, I have compassion on people. The Greek word is splagnon. It's a gut-wrenching, from the inside-out concern that Jesus had for people. And he says that these folks have been with me for three days without food. The word without food, a phrase without food, is exactly the same word for fasting. In other words, they had been preparing for what Jesus was going to do next without eating. Folks, that is a loss, a, uh, just a lost uh, idea among Christians today to say, I'm going to give up food for some period of time because I want to get close to Jesus. But that's what these people were doing in this section of Scripture. Verse 3. Verse 3 says, if I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because they've come, some of them have come from a long distance. And his disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough, what? Bread to feed them. And Jesus asked, how many loaves do you have? And they replied, what? We have seven. Now you'll understand that a little bit better as we move into the text. The scripture uh, uh, says that the disciples were asking Jesus, where on earth are we going to find enough bread for these folks to eat? And that's really fascinating to me, because Jesus turns to them and he says, how many loaves do you have in your hands? The phrase, uh, actually is not 12, it's Uh, 7. But but they, they will reply, 7. 
What Jesus has to say is, not so much, tell me how many are in your hands right now, but it's an extended form, it's a present tense word, and Jesus says, tell me what you have in your hands. Now think about this. The disciples were only thinking about physical bread, but in their very presence, they had Jesus who called himself the bread of life. In John chapter 6 and verse 35. I got to tell you one of the constant battles that I have in my life is taking my eyes off of the one loaf of bread or five or seven loaves of bread that I have in my hand to remember that the bread of life, Jesus, is always with me. And that was the disciples' problem. Verse 9 and 10, this is what we, uh, and verse 6 through 8, this is what we read. It says, the, uh, he told the crowd, sat down on the ground, and when he had taken seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute them to the people. And they did so. And they had uh, a few small fish as well, and he gave thanks for them also, and he told the disciples to distribute them. And the people ate and were satisfied, and afterwards they had, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of pe- broken pieces that were left over. Now, you may be saying to yourself, if you've been with us for a while, you may be saying to yourself, uh, uh, man, this is like deja vu all over again. Didn't we just study this passage of Scripture not too long ago? Well, in reality, in chapter 6, in verse 30 to 34, Jesus does another miraculous feeding of people. There it was 5,000 in number. There are many things similar between the two stories. Jesus fed a huge crowd of people, 5,000 then, 4,000 now. Uh, and the Bible says that Jesus had compassion on both groups of people. The scripture said that Jesus had the people set down and he took a small boy's lunch uh, in the first case and just a small lunch in the second case of, of a few uh, loaves and a couple of fish and he fed a huge crowd of people. Seems like it's the same story all over again. In fact, some Bible scholars want to collapse the two and say, no, actually it was just one story kind of told two different ways. I don't think that was the case at all because the Scripture is very direct, though there are many similarities, and pointing out one significant difference. The first miracle of feeding the 5,000 was done for Jewish people in Israel. This second miracle of feeding 4,000 people is done not in Israel, but is done in Jordan, in Gentile country. The Bible says that Jesus took seven loaves and he divided them, and after the the meal was eaten, seven basketfuls uh, were taken up. You need to understand that the number seven was uh, just the symbolic number in Bible for, for Gentiles. The area where Jesus uh, is ministering is called the land of the seven. For the seven Gentile kingdoms that had settled there and nations that had developed out of them. What's the point of all of that? The point is simply this. Jesus is not just the Messiah for Israel, for Jews. Jesus is the Messiah for all people. Now that ought to excite you. Because unless you're Jewish here today, had Jesus never stepped out of Israel to uh, share his love with other people, you and I would never have come to know Jesus as Savior of our lives. Jesus is not just Savior for Israel, the chosen people, 
He's Savior for all people. During 2015, two of our major goals of the church is grown right out of this attitude that Jesus is for all peoples in the world of the world. In the spring of 2015, we will be opening us, we, this congregation, by ourselves, opening an internet training facility in the nation of Nepal, right in the very middle of the 1040 window. The Nepali flag is the odd-looking flag. It's the only one like it over here to my left. You're right. And uh, pray about that as you see that. Uh, and, and that ministry is focused totally on reaching unreached peoples. And the evangelists that we will be training up through that internet training facility will have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ before. And that is a huge answer to Jesus' call for us to be global in our ministry. Something else that's on the horizon in 2015, perhaps you've heard, heard us talk about it, but in 2015 we're partnering with churches all around the state of Virginia and in the mid-Atlantic region to, to open seven different churches on the six inhabited continents of the world. And that's going to be an exciting thing. November uh, 2015, ICOM, the International Council on, uh, Conference on Missions, is going to be right here in, in uh, Richmond, Virginia, and we're going to have the opportunity to rub shoulders with missionaries from all over the world. But as a result of that, our church, us, we, through our giving, partnering with churches all over Virginia, will be opening, planting churches in seven different uh, uh, areas on six different continents of the world. Jesus went to all the world, and so must we. But we must also go to our own village, and so we'll look at that this morning. In verse 10 and 11, it says this. Uh, In verse 10, it says, Jesus got back in the boat with the disciples, and he went to the region of Dalmanutha. That's back in Israel. That's, he crosses the, uh, the uh, uh, Sea of Galilee from, from the nation of, uh, of what would be Jordan today, and he comes back into Israel. In verse 11 it says, The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. Now, the, uh, as, as I said, uh, Dalmanutha is back in Israel, and as soon as Jesus stepped foot back in Israel, the Pharisees, his longtime opponents, come to him, and, and the word came to him as a military word. It's like two armies facing off on a battlefield against each other. And the Pharisees came not just shake Jesus' hand and say, we're so glad that you come, but the Scripture says they began to question Jesus. The word means to bicker to interrogate, to challenge Jesus with what he's doing. Now, can you believe that people would do that? Jesus, the one who healed and cared for sick people. Jesus, the one who walked on water. Jesus, the one who fed thousands of people. The Pharisees began to question him. The scripture said they, they began to test him and to demand a sign, and a specific sign if you notice your Bible. They said, show us a sign from heaven. In other words, if you're the Messiah, give us the signature of God on what you're doing. Now, that's kind of a dumb thing to me because Jesus had just fed 9,000 people in two different audiences. But they're still saying, give us a sign from heaven that you are who you say you are. Does that remind you of another challenger? to Jesus early on in his ministry. 
You remember Jesus in the wilderness after fasting for 40 days, hungry? Satan comes to Jesus to challenge him one time, then two times, and then three times. The first of those challenges, Satan says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into what? Into breads. This passage of Scripture certainly reminds us of the generation of the Israelites in the wilderness and in the the book of uh, Exodus, demanding sign after sign after sign from God. God had parted the Red Sea, but that wasn't good enough for them. God had showed uh, Pharaoh and all of Egypt that he indeed was God, but that was not good enough for him. And if you read the book of Exodus over and over and over again, the Israelites come to Moses and complain and bicker with Moses. And they say, if you're God's leader, you do this for us. Give us water. If you're God's leader, you do this for us. Give us food. On and on and on and on and on. Verse 12 says that Jesus does not bend. In verse 12 it says, uh, he sighed deeply, emotionally. Jesus was torn up, even angry with them. And he says, why does this generation ask me for a sign? Truly I tell you, there will be no sign given to you. And he left them, and he got into the boat, and he crossed to the other side, to the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. Now this next section of scripture, to us, we can just read it, and we, we miss the 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 irony in it. But for the original readers, the Greek and the original language, the the readers would read, and this is a comical passage of Scripture to them, uh, because there are words and there are phrases that just don't come across well to us in English, but to them, uh, there were were, uh, double phrases used, and there were things that would, it was just a comical image, and all of them uh, would have gotten uh, just the the, uh, uh, ironic comedy in the story, and also the very deep meaning of the story. Verse 14, 15. Now the disciples had forgotten to bring what? Bread. Y'all aren't paying attention. The disciples had forgotten to bring what? Bread. And it's except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Now remember, Jesus had just fed 4,000 people. They collected seven basketfuls of leftovers. Okay, seven basketfuls of leftovers. By the way, the word leftover, I didn't even talk about that, is the word abundance. Abundance. It's the same word that Jesus uses in John 10.10 when he says, "I I want you to have, I came to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. Man, Jesus said, I want to pour abundance on you. And the disciples had just witnessed all of that. They got into the boat, they left, and they had only one loaf of bread among them. In verse 15, Jesus warned them, Be careful now, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they discussed this with each other, And they said, it's because we have no bread. Literally, they were looking around and saying, okay, who was the bread guy? Who forgot to bring lunch today? And they were pointing the fingers, and Jesus said, no, no, no. He said, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, there are two words for see in uh, in the New Testament, to see something. One is the word, Greek word, orao, The other is the Greek word blimpo, and they're hardly ever used together. But in this story, Jesus uses both of them. Literally, Jesus says, I want you to see something. 
I want you to see this. Parents, have you ever grabbed your child by the face and turned them and say, I want you listening. I want you to see this. I want you. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Shape up. Listen up. There's a warning I want to give you. And what is the warning? The warning is watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, the word yeast is always used in the, in the New Testament as a, a symbol of wickedness or corruption. I've given you, I think, on the board, there should be a couple of passages of Scripture, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, that talk about uh, yeast or bread uh, not made with yeast. You remember in the Passover, uh, the Israelites in the book of Exodus were told, don't use uh, yeast in the food that you're going to be making the night before you leave uh, uh, Egypt. And uh, from then on, the Passover feast was to be used with uh, bread that had no leaven, no yeast in it, all right? You also read a passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians uh, there, and I give you that, and I just want you to study that, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, because it talks about how a little bit of sin in a church can impact the entire church. How a little bit of sin in a, in a family can impact the entire family. And Jesus, or rather, Paul there says, man, you clean the yeast out of the church. Get rid of wickedness because it's going to destroy the entire church. I'll let you study the story on your own. Now, Jesus says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. How many people have ever heard of the Pharisees before? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a far right wing uh, political party in, in Israel. Uh, they were, I mean, ultra conservatives. They were the people that said, unless you believe just like we believe, not only are you wrong, but we don't even hardly think that you're Jewish. That was their attitude. They looked down on anybody else that was not a Pharisee. They looked down their nose on anybody else that thought any way different from their little narrow-minded way of looking at Scripture. That was the Pharisees. Now, Herod, on the other side, was as far left politically uh, and philosophically as you could possibly be. Man, he was a, a, a person that would throw away uh, any of his convictions. In fact, he had no convictions. He would side with anybody, whoever it was, uh, so that it would advance his political career. His attitude was that, well, we just all got to get along, you know. Let's forget about what we believe is true, and let's just kind of, uh, you know, uh, just all kind of kumbaya and get along. And that was Herod and the Herodians. Two extremes. And Jesus says, watch out from the yeast, the evil, of both of those parties. They had nothing in common except for this one thing. The Pharisees and Herod hated Jesus, despised Jesus, did not believe in Jesus. And Jesus was saying to his disciples, watch out that that same unbelief does not become a part of your life. The disciples, after Jesus said, watch out for the yeast of Pharisees and Sadducees, said, you know, is he talking about the loaf of bread that we forgot to bring with us today? And I, 
If you're ever feeling bad about yourself, if there's ever a time that you feel like you're not a good enough Christian, you need to study the disciples. They were morons. They really were. They never got it. And you got to just smack your head here and say, don't, don't you get it? Jesus is giving you an illustration here. He's not talking about a loaf of bread. He's talking about the unbelief that is right within your own hearts. Now, Jesus answers the disciples' question with seven, get that, seven questions. Seven questions. Verse 17, 21. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you still talking about that you have no bread? Question one. Number two, do you still not see or understand? Or are your hearts hardened? That's the core of the issue. Do you still have eyes, but do you have eyes but fail to see, and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? Don't you remember when I was in Israel, verse nineteen, and I broke the five loaves for you and the, uh, for the five thousand? Don't you remember how many basketfuls of pieces that were left that you picked up? And the answer they said was how many? Why is that significant? Somebody tell me. How many tribes were there in Israel? Twelve. By chance? No. Or now, when I was across the sea and in, uh, in, in, uh, outside of Palestine and Jordan, in verse 20, when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketful of pieces did you pick up? And they answered, what? Seven. The number of the Gentiles. And Jesus said to them, do you still not understand? You see, the issue that Jesus was hitting home was this. Guys, do you still not believe in me? Do you still not trust me? When we were in Israel, I fed 5,000 people with a little kid's lunch. And you collected with your own hands 12 basketfuls of leftovers, one for each apostle, one for each tribe. Just a a day or two ago, across the lake, I did the same kind of miracle and fed 4,000 people with with just a few uh, loaves of bread and a few fishes, and you picked up seven basketfuls of food. And now you're sitting here with me, the bread of life, in a boat and you're hungry, and there are 13 guys, including me, and you only have one loaf of bread, and you're worried about me providing for you. Folks, i got to tell you, I can't be too harsh on the disciples because I'm like them more often than I'm not like them. Because too often, I look at the one loaf of bread that I have in my hand. It may be a loaf of bread of sickness or it might be a loaf of bread of something I'm worried about. It might be a loaf of bread of a question that I I just can't seem to muddle through in my own mind to get to a good solution to. It might be a, a, a problem that I'm having with an individual but I look at that loaf of bread and I ponder and I wonder how can I fix this? In reality, I know the bread of life and the one that can supply for all 
of my needs. Has anybody, anybody else ever been there in your life before? Anybody but me ever worry about the loaf of bread in my hand? There are five things I want to get you from this, give you from this passage of Scripture uh, about hard-heartedness, hard-hearted unbelief. And I, I, if you're taking notes, I just want you to write these five things down and, and how to combat uh, hard-hearted unbelief. And then, then we'll be done this morning. Number one, in this passage of Scripture, I want you to see that unbelief grows in a heart that is blind, not seeing the miracles of God. Verse 18, Jesus says, you have eyes, but you can't see. You know, more often than not, I miss the workings of God and the miracles of God because I'm looking for something huge. When Jesus does something magnificent, feeding 5,000 or 4,000, I stand up and take notice and say, wow, God is among us. But more often than not, I miss God's miracle of the mundane blessings of God all around me every single day of my life. You know, God's everywhere, and God's provision is everywhere, and you can't move a moment in any day without realizing the miracle of life and of breath without realizing the beauty of nature. Uh, I was driving in the office today and I was eating a pear, uh, driving to church today eating a pear, and I thought, hmm, this is an unusual fruit. It really is. You know, it's not like an apple. It's not like a banana. I love both of them. It's a pear. It's got its unique flavors. Unique. And I just had to stop and say, thank you, God, for blessing me with a pear. This is a really good pear. No, uh, no rotten spots, no nothing. It's one, but you know, so oftentimes I miss the blessing of God because I'm looking for him only in the huge things. I, I would just ask you to this week to notice the fingerprints of God. They're everywhere. Slow down and look for them and appreciate them this week. Number two, unbelief grows in a heart that is deaf, not hearing the words of God. Verse 18, it says, you, you, you have ears, but you can't hear. You see, most of the time I don't hear the voice of God because I live in a world, and so do you, that is noisy and loud. I don't know whether you've noticed this or not, but God is not. In fact, one writer writes and he says, we serve a soft-spoken God. I like that. Many of you know that uh, my wife Carol uh, diagnosed the first of, uh, of, of August with uh, breast cancer, and uh, a lot of people have uh, just blessed us in, uh, in so many different ways. I want to say thank you for that. She's begun uh, chemotherapy, and uh, it's all that they say it is. It's terrible. I don't, I don't wish that on the worst uh, enemy. Uh, with God's blessing, she'll be at church in second service today, uh, and one of the first times she's been out uh, of the house in the last couple of weeks, and she'll go back for her next uh, treatment on, on Tuesday, and boom, it starts all over again, just wipes her out uh, totally. But I had decided when this process began that I needed to hear more clearly the voice of God than I'd ever heard before. And so this is what I did. I've read through the Bible. Somebody asked me, how many times have you read through the Bible? I don't know. I've read through it every year for years. I, I, don't, have, I don't have a clue. But I realized I needed a lot of God's voice in a short period of time. And so I searched around and I went to the Version Bible and I found a, uh, a, 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 an app that allowed, uh, gave, gave me a schedule that in 90 days uh, I could read the whole Bible. Uh, I'm right on target. I think I'm uh, 36 or 8% uh, finished with that. I just finished reading Nehemiah last week. But I got to tell you what has to happen for that to happen. And I'm not saying everybody needs to read the whole Bible through in 90 days. 
But I tell you what you do need to do. You need to slow down. You shut off television. You find a quiet spot with God and get his book out and say, Lord, would you talk to me today? And he will. But I want to tell you, he won't yell at you. More often than not, God speaks in that gentle whisper that he spoke to Elijah with, or he spoke to Moses with. It's a wonderful thing to study God's word, and I would just encourage you, get up early, stay up late, turn the noise off, uh, download a, 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 a reading plan, or find someone somewhere, uh, some, somewhere and listen to the word of God. Number three, unbelief grows in a heart that is forgetful, not remembering the actions of God. Verse 19 and 20, Jesus said, uh, when I, I had five, uh, fed the 5,000, how many loaves did you have left over? 12. Uh, verse 20, when I uh, fed the 4,000, how many loaves did you have left over? Uh, seven. Oftentimes what we do is we forget what God has done in the past and that keeps us from believing that he will bless us right now in the future, right now in our present. Don DeWelt says, with each new insurmountable mountain, it seems as though the wonders of God's grace and the memory of his deliverances past are all too soon forgotten. Folks, whenever you face a new storm, I would encourage you to remember God's faithfulness in the past. He's been faithful to you over and over and over again. And remember them, remember them, remember them. And that will allow you, that memory will allow you to trust him in your present and in your future. Number four, we're almost done. Number four, unbelief grows in a heart that is demanding and not thankful for the provisions of God. Verse six and seven It says, he told the crowd to set down on the ground. And when he had taken the the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute them to the people. And he did exactly the same thing with the fish. You know, I tend to overlook the importance of thanksgiving during times of problem and trouble. Carol has cancer. And it's very difficult to thank God during this process. It it is. But you know what I've come to realize in this short month is that without thanksgiving, God really is nowhere close to me. But it's only in the thankful heart that God's spirit is present and nearby and ready and able to bless That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6 when he says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with, say it with me, thanksgiving. Say it with me, thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Folks, I want you to understand that being thankful in the midst of your storm does not take lightly your storm. It's not about saying, oh, well, the storm isn't all that bad. No, the storm stinks, and it's awful. But in that storm with thanksgiving, it boldly brings to the throne of God your request, your prayer, with a bold faith enough to trust in God's divine sovereignty. Number five, with this I close. Unbelief grows in a heart that is entitled 
but is not serving the children of God. Hear me closely. Unbelief grows in the heart that is entitled not serving the children of God. Verse 6 and 7, there's a word that uh, is repeated twice, uh, and and the word is distribute. He says, he told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. And he did exactly the same thing with the fish in verse 7. By nature, I struggle with entitlement. By nature, I struggle with the fact that I want sympathy. I feel bad. I want people to moan with me. I'm, you know, when I'm sick, I'm sicker than most people. Uh, wives, you can jab your husbands right now. Most, most guys are sicker than most people. That's just the way it is. And I, I want people to feel sorry for me when, when I'm sick. I want attention. I want appreciation when I've done something good. But folks, I want you to understand that Jesus is calling every one of us, you and myself as well, to a higher calling higher than entitlement to service. The word distribute is the word to serve. The Bible says, Mark 10, 45, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As we worship together today, there are two groups of people here today that I want to talk to. And I want you to be impacted by the words that the Lord has spoken to you today. Number one, the individuals here today, and I know that there are, that have never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior of your life. You've never done that before. Maybe you've been in church a lot of times. Maybe you've never been in church before. But you've never accepted, never named Jesus as Savior of your life. You need to understand, according to that verse of Scripture on the screen right now, that Jesus came and he died on a cross to ransom you from your sins. The end of the service today, I'm going to give you the opportunity to name Jesus as Savior of your life, to accept Him as Savior, and I just pray that you would do that today. But if you're here today and you are a disciple of Jesus, I want to encourage you to become a real servant to real people around you. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, it says that God has selected exactly the time and place that He wants you to live. You don't live on your street, the end of your road. You don't work at the place that you work at. You don't go to school at the school that you go to school uh, at by chance. They have been selected by the divine sovereignty of the God of the universe. And you are where you are for a reason. And that's not just to take up space. It's to tell lost people about the Son of God who has come to ransom them from their sins. I want you to write down three words and we're done this morning. The first word is the word pray. Second word is the word care. And the third word is the word share. Prayer, care, and share. You live around people who don't know Jesus. You work around people who don't know Jesus. And just like my friend Daniel, they will go to hell without anyone caring about them unless you step up to the plate and begin praying, oh, my, oh God, give me open eyes for people around me that don't know your son as Savior of their life. Number two, begin caring for them, loving them, serving them. 
And then finally, share an invitation to come to know Jesus Christ as Savior of their life. You can do that. You can do that. Neighbors on your street, begin praying for them regularly. People that you work with that don't go to anybody's church, begin praying for them regularly. Write their names down. Pray for them regularly. Then begin finding ways to care for them, to serve them. Loaves of bread and fish, serve them so that you'll have the opportunity to share with them who Jesus is. Now, I know this is impossible for you to do. It's outside of your comfort zone, comfort level, and uh, you will not likely ever step up to the plate unless God is moving inside of your heart to make you do that. This morning, I want you to do this for me. I wish that if you can possibly do this, I just wish that you would take a knee, and I'm going to ask God's blessing on you as you begin sharing uh, the gospel with your friends around you. Let's take a knee this morning, and let's pray together. Father God, we just want to pause uh, just for a moment and remember our lost friends, our lost neighbors, our lost family members, uh, the people that we work with that don't know Jesus as Savior. Father, I pray that you would burn the image of their eternal souls deep into our hearts. And Father, just like the apostles, would you break down our hard-hearted unbelief that you could use a person just like us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Father, you prayed, uh, you, uh, Jesus, you gave us that incredible prayer request in Matthew that you would just, Father, you would just send workers into the harvest field. And Father, that's what I'm praying right here today, that you would send these workers into the harvest field. and You would cause them to see a, a lost community, a lost village around us people that maybe look like everything's together, but whose lives are far, far away from Jesus, and so their lives, their eternal destiny is, is, uh, is hell itself. Father, help us to care. Help us to share the gospel with lost people. Help us not be intimidated by the evil one or by our lack of courage. But Father, grow up right here in this place a people who believe that you are the Son of God and believe it enough that they want to share it with their lost friends and their neighbors and co-workers. And that's our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.